Welcome to Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, on this edition of the show, some pretty sombering information. Definitely. We're talking today about what's going around. We're going to hear from Zach Yaksich, whose daughter, Alana, passed away from the flu with Alana's foundation. We're going to hear from Dr. Linder, who's going to tell us what's happening in the UP with COVID. And finally, we're going to hear from Dr. Rafi and his experience with RSV and COVID in his health system in Flint. An interesting and informative show coming up next. Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, our first guest on today's show is Zach Yaksich. He is the president and executive director of Alana's Foundation. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you. Thank you. Zach, just start out and tell our listeners a little bit about this foundation and your family's experience with influenza or the flu. Yeah, sure. Um, Alana's Foundation, obviously, was uh, formed in memory of my daughter, who was five and a half um, and in 2003 died from due to complications from the flu. Um, at that time, before that, I personally, myself and my family, I had no idea that the flu actually killed people, could kill people. Um, I was under one of the common misconceptions that the flu was just a, a common cold and it's no big deal and you'll get over it. Um, so my daughter's life was taken rather suddenly, uh, actually in less than 24 hours. Um, and she was other other than the flu. I mean, she was healthy. I mean, she didn't have any any other uh, underlying conditions or anything like that. Um, and so that after it, it happened, obviously it affected my family. You know, all, she had two brothers at the time, and uh, her mother and I, and then their extended family, immediate family, and community members, and so forth. It affects everybody differently, but it was devastating to all of us in, in different ways. It was very very tragic and still recovering today so when, you know when it happened i was insistent on learning on on why i wanted to know why why did this happen i couldn't i was just couldn't believe that it happened because of the flu um and then i wanted to i just wanted to tell everybody that was willing to listen to me that it, you know that they can prevent this from happening to make sure that they get their family vaccinated um so that they don't have to experience the same tragedy that that my family did. And so we formed Alana's Foundation and Alana's Foundation for the most part is um, our mission is to inform people about the dangers of influenza and and to um, encourage them to get vaccinated and to make the vaccine convenient and affordable for them to receive. Zach, since the start of this foundation, what are some of the things that you have learned that have been somewhat surprising to you as you've done this? Um, well, like I said, I, I 
the number of people that die every year and that get yeah. sick from the flu, you know, depending on the reports that you read, but a pretty consistent number is on average, there's about 60 to 70,000 people that die every single year from the flu. Um, that was in 2003 is when my daughter died. And that's when they started to keep uh, count and track of those, those type of things. Um, I had no idea that there's, you know, probably it's, I think the number is 750,000 that people get hospitalized every single year due to the flu. And then there's the number of, you know, there's millions of people that get it and then are stay home from um, school and work and, and uh, cause stress on the health system that, you know, and like I said, until this happened, um, I was unaware of those numbers. Um, and then the other thing is just the misconceptions that people have about the flu specifically and about vaccines in general um, are, are just surprising to me what I, what I hear every single year. Especially people, what the most surprising to me is people that know my story, that know me on a personal level and some of the things that they say to me um, <laughs> still that oh, it's just the flu, or no, I don't need the vaccine, I never get sick, things like that um, are, are shocking to me. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that you said that that is scary to me is that your daughter, your beautiful daughter, was in great health, and she still got the flu, and she still died. Can you elaborate that on that a little bit, and what you've learned about how the flu can hit perfectly healthy people? Yeah, like I said, she she wasn't in perfect health. She was up to date on all her vaccines to um, child immunizations up until then. Um, one of the frustrating things about that was, like I said, at the time, the pediatrician, they didn't even recommend that my daughter, any of my children get the vac vaccine. Um, their reasoning was, when I asked them why, was that... Uh, it, she didn't fall within the, the CDC's age recommendations at the time. But they didn't, they, I still felt that they should have told her parents that, look, he, here's the dangers. She doesn't necessarily fall within it and, and give us that, allow us to make that choice. But she was five and a half years old. There was, she absolutely was in perfect health. She woke up on a Saturday morning and told her mother and I that, I don't feel like going to ballet today. I'm just a little, you know, I'm tired. She had a 99 degree fever. And by the end of the day, she was outside playing with their brothers in a, in a, we had a snowstorm that day. I remember it vividly. So there was no, there was no alarming signs of anything that happened. So that evening when she went, she went to bed and she woke up a few hours later, 106 degree temperature vomiting, lethargic, um, delirious. So within hours of her waking up, we were in the, in the emergency room. And with hours after that, we were having a doctor tell us that our daughter was not going to survive because she had the flu. So that's how quickly that, you know, it took somebody who was for the most part healthy or, or was healthy and in less than 24 hours, took her life that that fast there was nothing there was no leading up to it there was no long-term 
there was no chance for us to do anything. Mm-hmm. Now, Veronica, I know you've got some questions for Zach, too. Zach, I hear your story, and it just really hits me, and I want to tell you how sorry I am for your family's loss. And this is something that we want no parent to ever experience. You have turned your sadness and your loss into an amazing um, effort. And I wanted to just see if you could talk to us about some of those programs that Alana's foundation does. Sure. Um, Well, like I said, our, our mission is to educate people and to provide the, um, educate them about the, the flu, the dangers of it, and to encourage them to get vaccinated and and provide them with the opportunity to receive it convenient and affordable. So we do that. One way is to talk to, um, in, like in a format like this, um, oftentimes I'm invited, pre-COVID was invited to talk in front of PT uh, parent organizations schools, community centers, and so forth to tell my story because it's always, uh, we, we always often hear these statistics and they they overwhelm us or they go in one ear and out the other. But when you see and meet somebody <laughs> that it happens to, it seems like people stop and listen. Um, and so then we set up communities, um, um, vaccination clinics. And this time of year, obviously, is the time of year. We're very, very busy. Um, we've got ones, and we do that at fire stations, uh, the, the school community centers, uh, um, in, the, in the schools themselves. Uh, we do that at workplaces. We have many workplaces that contact us and ask us if we can set up a clinic in, you know, at their workplace for their workers. Um, and so when somebody comes there, we don't administer vaccines ourselves. We're just the uh, organizer, and we work with the Visiting Nurses Association. So we try to set them up around the community, or we'll set them up anywhere that they'll, that people are willing to do it. And um, people can come there and receive the vaccine absolutely free. Most insurances cover the vaccine today if they have insurance. We ask them to bring their insurance card. If they don't have insurance, then the foundation pays for the cost of the vaccine. So there's absolutely no out-of-pocket costs to um, to the general public. So those that want to receive it, there, you know, we try to remove the barriers. We try to make it, like I say, convenient and remove the affordability part. Um, so you had some success with a program for colleges, right? Yes. Yeah, we have we formed a um, called it the College Flu Challenge because uh, I guess this is the fourth year now. You know, we we found out we work very closely with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, and one of the statistics were that the the college students, um, for a number of reasons, are the lowest vaccinated uh, population. You know, they're. They're in their 20s. They feel inevitable. They don't have a lot of money. Um, So we decided to um, create a challenge amongst the colleges to, uh, you know, compete. So we have small, medium, and large school categories across the entire country. 
and we um, we actually make we have money available too that the colleges can write a grant to the foundation to receive money to pay for the vaccine so that they can administer it free of charge to their students. And then we have the students, um, you know, keep the schools keep track of how many they administer. We it's just a friendly competition, like amongst the the universities, to encourage them to to give to that population to get vaccinated. So, and it's worked out well. Uh, last year was a little bit challenging with COVID, only only from the college's standpoint of organizing and having people come to their. So, but this year it's um it's picking up again. So. Zach Yaksic, you have made such a difference in so many people's lives by telling your story and starting this foundation. We can't thank you enough for joining us here today on Why I Vaccinate. I really think your story could help people who are on the fence about getting uh, the vaccine for their children. I think it could change their mind, and we appreciate you telling the story, and we appreciate your time today. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. Coming up next, the latest on kids and COVID. We'll be back right after this. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And we now welcome Dr. Nicole Linder. She is with St. Francis Hospital in the Upper Peninsula, and she specializes in hospitalized patient care for COVID in a rural setting. Dr. Linder, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Veronica, I'm going to turn this over to you to kick this segment off. Dr. Linder, thank you so much for being with us. I wanted to just start by kind of having you walk us through what you do on a daily basis in the hospital. Well, we take care of uh, all general medical care of patients in the hospital, not just COVID, obviously. Um, so we take care of all the patients that come into the hospital through the ER that are sick enough to be in the hospital. We take care of them through their entire hospital stay, hopefully, unless they need to be transferred to a higher level of care. We are a small, uh, usually 25-bed critical access hospital. Uh, we do not have a full ICU, and we don't have any other medical specialties available. And so uh, that's kind of the uh, gist of what we do. Um, during COVID, we were able to expand our bed capacity by five additional beds, and we have that in place again right now because of our case volumes increasing again. Um, and so uh, we have become quite adept at taking care of COVID. We've taken care of a lot of COVID. Our county has some of the highest numbers in the Upper Peninsula and has uh, through most of the pandemic. How is, how is your staff doing? What are you seeing in terms of their morale? Well, it is, it's been challenging. Um, we did lose quite a few uh, of our more seasoned veteran nurses uh, during the pandemic after the first big waves that we had. And our staffing is, uh, you know, lower, uh, you know, we're, we struggle at times to uh, staff appropriately. And a lot of our staff is new grad nurses now. So um, that also can be a challenge uh, in a time like this where it's harder to do a lot of teaching um, because you're just trying to yeah, you know, get through the day. 
Um, so that's been an issue. And I, I think that this time is harder for the staff. You know, during the first go round, you know, it kind of it felt I mean, it was scary and, you know, it was still very ill patients, but it, there was nothing that we could have done to prevent these things from happening. We just had to do our best uh, to help them get better. And this go round, it, it does feel harder because you're taking care of these very ill patients and you feel that this didn't need to happen to them. You feel like everything that you're doing is unnecessary in a way. And uh, I think that that is harder for our nurses, especially the nurses that have been there through the whole pandemic. Uh, it's almost a little bit, bit like Groundhog Day. <laughs> you know, you think we all thought, you know, when when the vaccine came out, that that would really kind of get us out of this. And, and, and that hasn't come to fruition. So that has been stressful. And are you hearing remorse from the patients as well? Obviously, I know it's very challenging for the nurses mm -hmm. to be experiencing that. But what are the patients saying? Most of them pretty quickly do, you know, make statements that they wish they had been vaccinated. Um, some some really never do. Uh, you know, this is that's another thing that's different than the first go round. This go round, you know, the patients that we're seeing haven't been vaccinated by choice. And some of them have very deep seated beliefs that COVID is not real. Uh, and we have a, sometimes there's a lot of denial that they don't even believe that that's what's wrong with them. And their family doesn't believe that that's what's wrong with them. Uh, so that that's a very unusual challenge um, in medicine to have to be met with that much uh disbelief and the kind of an alternate reality. Um, so that's been challenging for all the staff as well. And what are your statistics in terms of those who are admitted who are vaccinated versus unvaccinated? Oh, I believe we've only had, I, I can't say for sure, but I only recall three patients admitted that were vaccinated. Actually, four, because one was partially vaccinated, had had one dose of uh, the Moderna vaccine and then was ill at the time of their second scheduled dose. And so, you know, didn't get rescheduled. Um, but none of our vaccinated patients have been, you know, really critically ill and, you know, needed to be transferred to a higher level of care. I tend to see you see a different pattern in um, just the recovery and even in the laboratory changes. Uh, you see that if they've been vaccinated, their immune system is able to, at a certain point, just kind of turn the corner and everything just gets better really quickly uh, in comparison mm -hmm. to the natural history of COVID, um, where things either take a turn for the worse at some point uh, and never recover, or you see a very gradual uh, improvement after a certain point. So I would say it's very different. So with regard to these adults that are coming in and talking to you about, I guess, their disbelief in COVID, are they explaining why they aren't trusting you and the medical science? Like, who are they or where are they getting their information, if not from medical science? Yeah. I have had patients say that they watched too much of certain TV channels. I have had patients say that they, you know, believe too many things they read on Facebook or online. Um, we, I, I have had a patient and their family who their reason for not believing in COVID was that they said that COVID was against their religion, <laughs> that the religion told them that COVID wasn't real. I don't know what religion they were speaking of. I'm not aware 
aware of any organized, recognized religions having an anti-COVID or anti-COVID vaccine stance. So I can't comment more specifically about that. And what are um, some of the reasons for not getting the vaccine? What are they saying with regard to why they just will not go there? Most of what I hear is um, that it's, you know, a foreign substance that they're injecting in their body that they don't feel has been fully tested enough or fully proven to be safe enough or even fully proven to be effective. I think a lot of the patients that are still unvaccinated, you start with a belief that COVID isn't real or definitely isn't as bad as, you know, uh, we in the medical community know it to be. There's a kind of a, a belief that it's really just like the flu. We hear that a lot still too. I thought this was supposed to be just like the flu. Um, and so when you start with that kind of belief, then taking a vaccine that they feel to be risky or unproven for something that isn't even real is an easier choice to make. Uh, so I think there's just many layers of misinformation and um, incorrect uh, assumptions and beliefs. Dr. Linder, how does the medical community feel about how we get out of the pandemic? We keep telling people they need to be vaccinated, but as you're explaining to us in this interview today, it doesn't look like a lot of people are going to do that. So how do we get out of this? What's your thinking on this? Unfortunately, I don't see us truly getting out of it unless we are able to reach a point of kind of what we call herd immunity through vaccination uh, and driving down the levels of circulating virus. Um, you know, I I hate to sound like a pessimist or a doomsdayer, but I feel at this point, and this is my personal opinion, I am not an epidemiologist, um, that I almost feel like we're in a race between vaccines and variants. And... Mm -hmm. At some point, with all this COVID circulating and infecting more and more people, every time it infects someone, that's another chance for it to mutate into something that the vaccine is not going to work against. Do you tell the vaccinated patients, or I should say, do you tell the patients who have had COVID already but are not vaccinated mm -hmm. to get vaccinated? Definitely. I explained to them that having a natural case of COVID or an actual case of COVID protects them for several months from reinfection, definitely from the same variant. Um, but if they are challenged with a different variant, we don't know if they're protected. And we do know that their natural immunity wanes over time. And so I, st I always tell them, you know, you do not want to roll the dice twice. You know, you were sick enough this time to be in the hospital. We don't know if you get a second infection with a different variant, what that's going to mean. And please get vaccinated. You'll have much broader and more long lasting protection. Dr. Linder, I just wanted to ask you about availability of vaccine in the Upper Peninsula. Where are patients mm -hmm. able to go to get vaccinated? How plentiful is your supply? Very plentiful. Uh, they can get it at all of the physician offices. They can get it at all the local pharmacies on a walk-in basis. They can get it at the health through the health department. There is no shortage of vaccine. It's very widely available. It is free no matter what. Uh, I've heard people saying that financial concerns, there is no financial concern. It is free. Um, we've actually, I've heard reports from uh, some of the clinic doctors that I know that they've been having to destroy lots of vaccine that goes unused. And that's just 
heartbreaking to me. You know, those those vaccines need to be in the arms of people here and around the world if we are going to recover from this. Dr. Nicole Linder, a doctor who deals with hospitalized patient care for COVID in the Upper Peninsula, St. Francis Hospital. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you for spending time with us and thanks for the expertise. Oh, thank you for letting me speak. It's um, It feels good to actually get what is in the minds of a lot of us healthcare providers out there. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. We'll be back right after these messages. Here on Why I Vaccinate, we now welcome Dr. Yassin Rafi. He is a Michigan State University Assistant Professor of Pediatrics. He's also a Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist at Hurley Children's Hospital. Doctor, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. And, and Veronica, I'm going to let you kick this segment off for us. Doctor, we have so much we want to talk to you about today. Thank you for being here. I'd like to start by talking to you about everything COVID. So there's a lot that parents are concerned about. They want to know what you're seeing in the hospital system, especially since school is now back in person. Can you talk to us about your experience right now with COVID and kids? Sure. Uh, you know, recently over the last few weeks, uh, we have seen uh, some uh, increase in the number of cases uh, that test positive and number of cases uh, that get admitted to the, our pediatric unit uh, and actually uh, our pediatric intensive care unit. Uh, mainly they're kind of uh, teenagers uh, with some underlying health issues, obesity, asthma. Uh, and I have seen a level like similar to what I had seen back in April last year. Uh, they're sick. Uh, many of them uh, require uh, some assisted ventilation or some kind of breathing machine to help them breathe. Uh, they're sick for a few days in the hospital. Uh, so uh, I think we see definitely a good increase in the number of cases. The other uh, situation that I have been uh, encountering here uh, is increase in the number of cases of what we call it post-COVID syndrome or the multi-inflammatory uh, syndrome associated with COVID, meaning kids few weeks after having a COVID, they come down with fever, rash, red eyes, uh, inflammation in the muscle of their heart. Uh, they're really sick uh, and get admitted for that reason, uh, which is kind of unique uh, pediatric situation. Uh, so I've seen also increase in the number of these cases. And can you comment on whether these cases you're seeing are happening in kids who are vaccinated or unvaccinated in that adolescent age group? So, you know, um, most of the cases that I have seen over the last, let's say, two months, they were unvaccinated. Uh, I don't have the exact number, but I can tell you the majority, more than 80, 90 uh, percent. I don't remember even a case of a young adolescent who was vaccinated and got admitted. Uh, taking, you know, taking consideration, I practice in a small community hospital, so I don't have large number to comment. But that had been my personal experience, that most uh, were unvaccinated. So for those parents with kids in this age group who are still on the fence, about whether or not to get their kids the vaccine. What can you say to them? Go get it. It's easy to get. I gave it to my two daughters, 13 and 17 years old. 
it's safe, it's effective, it protects them, uh, it helps them uh, go back to school, be normal, go get it. Okay. Now, I want to switch gears and talk to you about another virus that's circulating in the community that's very scary, especially for parents with young kids, RSV. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what RSV is? So it stands for uh, respiratory sensation virus. Uh, and it's a relatively common virus, uh, but it's a, it has really a major impact, as you mentioned, on the young infants uh, and young kids, especially those who have underlying uh, health issues, uh, born premature, born early, have a chronic lung disease, chronic heart issues. Typically, kids younger than one year old are affected the worst. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, me or you, if we got this RSV, we get a common cold. Uh, those young infants, when they get it, it starts like a little common cold, uh, sniffles, runny nose, little cough. But a few days down the road, that congestion and inflammation go down to their lungs and cause a lot of wheezing, trouble breathing. Uh, we call it bronchitis, uh, which is basically inflammation of the small airways or windpipes inside their chest. Many of them get admitted to the hospital, needed to be, uh, you know, help with their breathing, need oxygen. Uh, definitely serious illness uh, for this extremely young age group. Why are we seeing it now? What is, what's the deal? Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Definitely, uh, it, it surprises. Uh, it's not like really a surprise. We were kind of anticipating this uh, in a way that we had some information from the Southern Hemisphere, like South Africa, Australia. Uh, they saw unusual season of RSV. So typically, RSV uh, happen uh, in the winter months, the winter virus, November till March or April. Uh, but this year, uh, we start to see it June, July, and peaked in August. One reason we believe is that because of all the procedures that were uh, were in place last year, uh, you know, uh, social distancing, no schools or remote learning. Uh, we did not have the season of RSV last year. Uh, and so you have a, a susceptible pool of young kids who have never been exposed to it. And now they are back into kind of uh, school, daycare, the older siblings in the school, they bring the virus home. Uh, people are more mingling and socializing. <laughs> and the virus took its chance. And now it has this young susceptible pool that's infecting. So actually we're expecting a heavier season than normal because you have more susceptible young babies. There's no vaccine for RSV, right? True, unfortunately. Yeah, and and actually a, a person can get RSV more than once, right? True, definitely. Uh, usually the first one is the most severe one, especially if you're, you're young and mm -hmm. premature and at risk. But subsequent uh, RSV infections usually will be mild. Okay. So when a child presents or an infant presents to you, what kind of symptoms do they have when they have RSV? Mm -hmm. So, you know, early on in the first three, four days of their illness, they might look like having a common cold, cough, congestion, secretion from the nose. Uh, but uh, starting after the first few days, many of those kids start to have uh, trouble feeding. They don't feed well. They get dehydrated. Uh, they cough so hard, they vomit. They have trouble breathing uh, with a lot of congestion and wheezing in their lungs that uh, they struggle to breathe. And some of them need oxygen to be admitted. 
So uh, typically either they're dehydrated or having trouble breathing when I see them. And that's what I know that they need to be admitted. I know Anne has some questions for you too, doctor. We have a, a new grandchild who is a, a couple months old. So this RSV, I'm on high alert about this. I've been reading a lot about it and I have noticed that it's on the increase. Is there any way to prevent it? So the most effective way that we know of is good hand washing, you know, uh, especially around those young babies, especially if they are older, you know, kids around them when they're coming back from school. It's just to teach our children overall uh, good hand washing when they come from the school, good coughing etiquette, you know, uh, somebody has little sniffle cough, probably don't need to come or visit if possible. Uh, those are the general measures that uh, prevent a young baby two months old that we cannot vaccinate, we cannot do anything uh, to protect them uh, from catching the virus. Uh, one other thing, you know, that can be an option for some babies to prevent them from having the virus uh, is something called monoclonal antibodies. Uh, yes. That's uh, more of a passive antibodies, you know, uh, kind of protective proteins made in the lab, and it's given as a, a muscle shot. For certain high-risk babies, you know, not all babies, uh, somebody has to be like really extremely born early, has a chronic lung issues uh, or a chronic heart issues, they might be qualified. And actually, we started to give these shots to certain qualified babies in the community here around in Flint. Is there any kind of research underway to perhaps create a vaccine or something that would help these young infants? avoid this I, I heard, dangerous disease? Yeah, I heard, you know, there's some optimism that hopefully somebody uh, will try using this new technology of uh, RNA vaccines that we use it for COVID to try uh, to come up with a good vaccine for RSV. So definitely there is a lot of effort in the medical community, uh, but not, not so far we don't have any kind of good effective vaccine, but uh, uh, definitely uh, I heard of effort trying to apply this new technology of RNA vaccine uh, to uh, come up with a good effective vaccine against RSV. And what about trying to keep the infants out of daycare settings or, you know, large groups of people? Would you advise that right now because of this, this increase? So, I mean, definitely it's a good idea. Usually when I talk to my patients, you know, my parents, you know, uh, about this, uh, I, I usually tell them if it's definitely uh, available for them, a smaller daycare or home daycare or a grandma or grandpa or some friend who can babysit that baby, definitely that will decrease the chance of the baby catching RSV or any other respiratory viruses. Uh, uh, but it's not always feasible. Uh, but definitely if somebody has the option uh, of a smaller daycare or a much smaller scale kind of home daycare, they should go for it. One more question before we let you go. Are you worried about the infants getting COVID? And if they did get COVID, how sick are the infants, the little teenies getting? Because some of them have gotten maybe some antibodies from mother getting the vaccine and mother's breast milk. So typically, my experience has been uh, with a young infant. They don't get that ill with COVID. Uh, and that has been experienced everywhere. You know, young infant, I mean, definitely there are cases of them getting ill and needed to be in the hospital. But 
compared to older kids and adolescents, generally they fare well. Uh, my, my concern for infants at this uh, time is more of the RSV and the flu. That's another thing I want to bring the attention. Uh, flu shot is available for babies six months and over. And we expect also like a heavy flu season. Uh, and that's something I would definitely take advantage. And some, if you want something uh, to protect your young baby or young child is get the flu shot too. Yeah, that's a very, very good message. Dr. Yassine Rafi, Michigan State University Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and a Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist at Hurley Children's Hospital. Thank you so much for your time and the important information you've given us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and on behalf of my co-host, Veronica McNally, thank you for listening, and we hope you have a great day.